Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, Hebrews chapter 8. Um, we get a tidy summary of just where we're at in Hebrews right now is the, we have throughout Hebrews, there's been this mention of Christ as new high priest. And we're going to focus on that. Uh, those mentions, chapter 2, verse 17, 3, 1, 4, 14, 5, chapter 5, 6, 19, 7, 26. Every chapter except for the first, there's been this mention of high priest, this idea that Christ is the high priest. So if we have Jesus as a high priest, this new mediator of a new covenant, um, he takes the place of Moses, who is the mediator of the old covenant. And that includes the current Levitical priesthood that Moses set up. So they made the argument last week that Jesus is actually of the order of Melchizedek, an order of priests that were not Levitical. They were not from Moses. And so we have these priests all the way back to Abraham that made altars and gave offerings, and they weren't Levites. And Jesus is one of those, is the argument that they're making. Because the Jews were like, Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's not, he can't be our high priest because he's not of Judah. And it's just that simple. Or he's not, I'm sorry, he's not of Levi. And it's just that simple. He's of Judah. So how does that work? So this is an answer to that question. More so, I think, the writers of Hebrews are going a step further. Like, not only are they making the logical arguments here, but they're adding on to each of these layers, and it's better than what we had. Like, this is a gift. So don't just look a gift horse in the mouth and go back to synagogue. Not only should you not go to synagogue, you should be happy for what we do have, right? So we'll do an Old Testament survey looking at the covenants. You may want to, while I'm doing the first part of this, actually get a finger, a bookmark, fold over an ear in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Matthew. We're going to do, as much as we're doing Hebrews, all of this points to kind of an Old Testament study too. So we're just going to dig in and do that. It's a fairly short, short chapter today, so we can. So just kind of get set up and ready. Have those Jeremiah, Isaiah, Matthew, just have them ready to turn to. And I think you're going to just get a gift today. This is an absolute gem that they're writing. You get towards the end of Hebrews. They've done all their foundational work, and now they're building it up. So today we're going to talk primarily, if we have a new high priest, there must be a new temple. And then next week we're going to get into a new sacrifice. So they're, they're laying out the replacement for each of the elements of Judaism. And this week we're kind of doing the temple. Verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not a man. So we switch gears to this tabernacle, true tabernacle. It's interesting that they say tabernacle and not temple, because remember, Moses established Levitical priesthood and a tabernacle that lasted for 400 years. He didn't necessarily build a temple. In other words, that's important because then God traveled with his people anywhere they went. There wasn't one spot. So there's a season where there's a temple and there's one spot where God like, promises to be there for people. Um, but for 400 years, they were in a tabernacle. They moved around, which looks a lot more like the church. God's presence moves with his people. 
And so they're, they're subtly adding that in. Jesus then serves as a priest from the heavens or the true tabernacle. Also, he, one only sits down when somebody's finished with their work, right? He doesn't stand in the tabernacle like the Levitical priesthood. He sits in the, in the, in the, at the right hand of God. So the, the, or, or as God's right hand, if you look at Old Testament references, they use that fairly interchangeably. So he is God's right hand. He is there. Um, and in the earthly tabernacle, there were no seats anywhere as part of the furniture. There was no place to sit in the earthly tabernacle. It was a reflection um, because their work had to keep going on and on and on and on. And that's what we covered last chapter is the priestly work of the old covenant had to continue all the time. But this new covenant, the work's finished. Chapter 7, Jesus is a priest of the original order, pre-temple, pre-Levi. Verses 1 and 2. Then we have a post-temple eternal order or a heavenly sanctuary, which is the real deal. This is the thing, or as Lisa would say, pencils down. Um, his position then is not on earth anymore like the Levites. His position's in the heavenly tabernacle or the eternal realm. So when Moses gave instructions for the tabernacle, they were a copy from the beginning. They were always a copy. And he's reminding them of that when he talks about a true tabernacle. From, they were supposed to be an image of heaven an image of the eternal throne. If you go back to Exodus 25, 8, it says, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them according to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle. So it's a copy. When, and a pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so you shall make it. What's really cool is tonight at the Bible study, we're doing 1 Kings chapter 5 and 6, where they build the temple. And part of the argument of the temple is the temple is also a shadow or a copy of the things that are in heaven. It's to teach us humanity what heaven is like. And heaven's pretty special. So it says here that, that um, we have, at the very end of verse 2 it says, and not a man. This is important. All the Levites were men. They all died. They all had to continually do the work of God for atonement. But this Jesus is not a man. The Lord erects something new, and the high priest is now God himself. So we can rely on God himself. We could never rely on the men of Levite. That's all in chapter 7. But So when we get here and we look at these plans and these, the, the images of it, tonight, again, we'll go through this in detail. Like, Look at all of these aspects of the temple that are an image of God and of the church and how we should look. But for now, for chapter 3, every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. They all had a job. Therefore, it's necessary that this one, Jesus, has something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve and copy the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. That's the Exodus reference. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Ministry in the Greek means service. He's going to do a service for his people. All through the Old Testament, God always was serving humanity or providing a path for humanity. All of God's work, he doesn't need to do for himself. He does it because he, he wants to make a way for humanity to walk and talk with him in the garden. That was always the plan. How do we get so that humans who are sinful and corrupt can be with a pure, almighty God and actually have communion and love and relationship with that God? How does that happen when we're all sinners? Every one of the eras of human history, every one of the covenants God's made has been another step towards that process of making a way for God to get into the presence of God or for humans to get into the presence of God. 
Pray for me. I don't want to say things that are heretical just because I'm flipping words. Verse 3, the sacrifice for sin then is the core of the work of the priesthood. There's a constant atonement that goes on in the priesthood over and over and over again. So, you know, when Solomon gave sacrifice at the temple when it was founded, thousands of animals were brought in and killed because blood atones for sin. And that's just one of the, the rules God sets up. Jesus never officiates or offers to officiate as a priest in the temple of Herod, ever. He goes into the courtyard and cleans it out because he thinks it's disgusting how corrupt it's gotten to be inside of this space. But there's a reason he thinks that's so disgusting. Part of it is we studied Matthew, we saw that he was claiming the priesthood for himself and he was showing the priest to be corrupt. But he gives himself then, what does Jesus have to offer? The only thing that's relevant, the only thing that's eternal is he offers himself. He allows himself to die. And all the gospel writers are very careful about how they word this, that he offered himself up. They didn't take him, he offered himself. So the syllogism here, if you, we could get there, is a really simple, and, and this is where we see the influence of Greek logic coming in. Jesus equals high priest, chap, chapter 7. All of Jesus is high priest, chapter 7. But high priests, in verse 3, offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, Jesus should have a gift or a sacrifice that he offers. And that's kind of the syllogism that's laid out there. Verse 4, Jesus doesn't qualify for the lesser priesthood, of which there's plenty of Levite priests out there. So on earth, Jesus is not a priest. He's not a Levite of the order of Aaron. But Jesus is a priest, so it me therefore, it must be that he's an eternal priest. There's no other way to reconcile that. So that leads us right into actually the truth of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to share. Jesus is doing his ministry in the heavenly realm. He was anointed or appointed for that ministry upon resurrection when God raised him from the dead. So then verse 6, but now he's obtained a more excellent ministry insomuch as he's also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. The entire point of the covenants of God is a promise. There's something there. Even the covenant we live under is a promise or a hope of salvation that we get to look forward to. That's what we're pushing and driving towards. So in verse 5 where it says, who serve the copy, all of the Levitical priesthood are serving a copy of what's real. So Exodus 25, 40, it's all a pattern that they're making so that we can see what it should look like. So Jesus serves at the real thing. He's in the heavenly eternal place. This is the tabernacle that God was trying to make an image of with Moses' tabernacle. The pattern of it's wonderful. In fact, the Herod's second temple is amazing. It's, it's not even listed as one of the wonders of the world because it was like above that. Even Solomon's temple was something absolutely glorious. We'll get into it tonight again, but the amount of gold in Solomon's temple by today's standards would be like $100 billion. There's not a building on this planet that costs that much. You could argue the, the Mecca Mosque for the Muslims, but I have a feeling if I know my God that that was like $99.9 .9 billion. Like it doesn't quite get there. A ridiculous amount of resource and wealth. There's some even measuring that the, the original temple had the amount of gold in it that would have been about one-thirtieth of all the gold on the planet. And as they conquered all these kingdoms around them, like they were accumulating gold from all of them and used it in the temple. So all that wealth and, and whatever went into it, it's an amazing thing, but it's still a copy. It's nothing compared to the eternal heaven and tabernacle, the thing we look forward to. But God gives us things to look forward to by giving us a shadow of them so that we can know that there's a real thing out there too. 
the pattern then becomes this amazing image. The first century Jews would actually watch out about swearing on the temple. Like they wouldn't swear on God, but they'd swear on the temple. Like it was that important to them. It's just a building. It's just a copy. It was a source of their pride. So when you start knocking on the temple, it's like with a football fan, you start knocking on their football team. Like it's personal to them. So the readers of Hebrews, if, if they were devout Jews, this would have been fighting words. Like, what are you talking about the temple's a fake or a copy? But he's reminding them of what the Old Testament says. Here's what your Torah says. It's a copy. It was never meant to be the real thing. So what is made by humans will then always be a human thing. And I think God did a lot to keep humans' work away from, like they couldn't bang on the rocks where the temple mount was. They had to carve the rocks away and then haul them to the temple so that it, it, there's this image of it being made by God. And that's important. It's important as we look at the church. God does his work. Individual rocks building up a building called the body of Christ or the church. And God's hand is in all of it, but none of us individually look like anything more than a rock. But when you put it all together, God's work becomes magnificent. That's the problem with every single thing that's made on earth is that it lacks life. It lacks the thing that God breathes into it. Yet that's the very thing that we want. And this is all of human history, humans striving for something that touches the soul and never quite getting there. You know, Michelangelo's God and, and is it Adam on the other side and the two fingers don't quite touch? That's always been the effort with art, with music, with literature, with architecture. It's always been our goal. We want to get as close as we can to the eternal, yet we can't. We're human. So that puts humanity in a spot where the only life we have is the thing we want desperately or we have a God-sized hole in our heart, and we try to fill it with everything else. So we can write a book, paint a picture, build a temple if we want to. All of it falls short of life, that one thing we're looking for. And this is kind of that point. We serve a copy. But it's not for lack of trying. <laughs> we make rules to try to make a better society. God made 10. Minnesota has over 248 chapters of rules in the state of Minnesota, but we haven't gotten any closer to heaven than what they had in early Judaism under Solomon, under David. But we got lots of laws, and all of those laws control life, and God's Ten Commandments give life. We follow them, and for some reason we feel closer to God when we do. Yet I could follow all 648 chapters of the Minnesota Code and not feel any closer to God when I got there. So it just shows that the ridiculous amount of efforts humans put into things and it's all a copy now think of that in terms of hebrews they put a ridiculous amount of effort into making rules and laws and temples and they're all just a copy and none of them get them any closer and the writer is trying to say you guys are serving a copy you're putting all this intelligence and and wisdom and strength into something that gets you nowhere it's an end. So he uses the phrase more excellent ministry. Literally, literally the word there, word there, ministry, is service, but it's a kind of kind of service. When that Greek word gets used, it's a public service, a service you do out in public. So this word ministry becomes popularized by the church. Prior to the church, ministry is just public service. You're doing a work out in public. But when the church comes to be, this is one of our core concepts that Jesus models for us because he does a service for the church, we're supposed to do a service for the church. We're supposed to add our own lives into that mix. And again, tonight we're going to really walk through some of that theologically. Um, Jesus serves at the real tabernacle, giving a more excellent ministry. 
and the sacrifices that he gives don't just atone for sin temporarily, like thousands of animals. Jesus' atonement for sin is an eternal atonement because he's an eternal being given an eternal sacrifice in himself, which then lasts eternally. It's once given and forever received. So Jesus gives gifts and sacrifices. Jesus is in heaven, which means the gifts and sacrifices that Jesus gives are heavenly gifts and sacrifices. They're eternal actions. And then he's the mediator of a better covenant. Here's where I thought we should do a little Bible study. What does a better covenant mean? So when he says this, he's assuming that his listeners, I say he, the writers, writer slash writers of Hebrews, they're assuming that you as a reader know exactly what the covenant is. So I think it's a good time to refresh ourselves and remind ourselves what's the covenant. But the problem is, if you go to the Old Testament, there's six covenants. They're all over. And you go, okay, which covenant are we talking about? So the word covenant there is mesites, or the, 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 I'm sorry, mediator there is mesites, someone who brings two parties together. Every one of the six covenants of the Old Testament are God bringing humans closer to him or providing a path to get closer. All of the covenants fail, so to speak, except for this, the book of Hebrews is the written text on the failure of the sixth covenant. So I think it's worth kind of poking through some of these. In covenant number one, Adam is told in Genesis 2.16 that he would be with God and walk with God if he followed in God's ways. The only deal was in that covenant, don't go after trying to decide what good and evil is for yourself. Just that's it. Just follow me and be with me. Adam, as we all know, broke the covenant. Um, in chapter three, he just he messes it up, and that's the beginning of the story. Humans are now separated from God. Covenant number two is made with Noah, Genesis 8 and 9. There's the Noahic covenant, which gives kind of a root version of the law. Um, and over time, most of humanity falls away from it, just like over time, most of humanity falls away from God. In the time of Noah, Noah and his family, they were it. The whole planet had fallen away from God except for Noah and his family. We have more people than that right now in this room, right? Like, you think of just how massive of a shift that was of humanity not wanting to be around their God. So the same thing happens with Noah. When you get to Abraham, there's an image there, too, that God's picked out one faithful family and calls them out of one country and sends them walking to another. And out of all the planet, Abraham is the one that God's going to interact with. And there's a nation that's going to bless the world. He says, now I'm going to make a nation, Genesis 12, Genesis 17. Promises it to Abraham, but makes a covenant with Abraham. This is like, <laughs> this is like showing up at the store and going to buy your stuff at the register. And you get to the register and the register person says it's already paid for. You're good. Right? This is like, this has already been done before we were even born. And I, I think for me that history is one of those things that just captures my imagination. It's already been taken care of. Not only that, the person at the register leans down behind the counter and says, oh, and I have this other thing that's eternal that I'm going to add on to what you thought you were going to buy. All six covenants are what we come to the clerk with with our shopping cart. That thing from behind the counter is what God now puts on the table with, with covenant number seven. Pretty amazing. Oh, and this is going to be eternal. And you can't break it. Once you accept the gift... You can't get rid of it, right? Every other covenant, humans have the ability to mess it up because in every other covenant, humans are part of the equation. But on this covenant, we're not part of the equation. God did it. God offered himself as the sacrifice. So covenant number four, Mosaic. 
um, there's one law. So now God, they have a nation. Now God's going to give them a law. Exodus 24, Israel gets formed. There's a bunch of human priests that get put into place. Then in covenant five, God talks to Joshua and says, I'm going to lead you directly. I'm going to, I'm going to raise up people when needed called judges. And God tries to do that. He raises up prophets and he raises up judges to help to lead the nation. But people don't, they get sick of it. Judges 3 is the covenant, but people want to just have a, a human leading them instead of God himself. So God says, fine, I'll give you a king. Covenant number 6, the Davidic covenant. He vows and promises David that he's going to establish a kingship to lead Israel. Only part of that covenant, actually part of all these covenants is, I'm going to make this covenant with you for now, but it's a seed of an eternal covenant that I'm going to make with you later. So you can really go through these texts if you want to, and, and, and to me it's a fascinating way to read the Old Testament. But now in covenant number six, God creates a throne. There's going to be a king. So he's made priests and prophets through Moses. He's or priests through Moses, prophets through Joshua, and he makes a king through David. Priest, prophet, king. And in all three of those covenants, he said, someday this is going to be eternal. This is how I'm going to do it forever. Second Samuel 7 is the covenant with David, if you want to kind of go do that study. Uh, all of these covenants had a sacrifice. All of them did. And this is the argument of Hebrews. There has to be a better, if it's a better covenant, then our mediator needs to make a better sacrifice. So in all of these covenants, there's a sacrifice. Adam gave a rib. He gave of his own body, right? And he's not a Levite, but he gave a sacrifice. Then you get Abraham. He famously gets up on the hill, Genesis 22, and is about to offer his own son. And God says, ah, I don't need you to offer your son. I'm going to provide the sacrifice of myself. And he hints at this messianic kind of thing. After beating the Amalekites, Moses builds an altar. Wait. Yeah, Moses is Levite, so he can pull this off. He builds an altar, Exodus 17. Joshua 8.30, he builds an altar and gives sacrifice in praise of God's salvation. David directly is told by God to buy the threshing floor of Aruna, 2 Samuel 24.18, and build an altar on the threshing floor, which happens to be where Christ is crucified. Right? It all connects. And the more as believers we understand how it all connects, the more rooted our faith gets, the more confident we get in what we're doing, the more silly our problems look in the, the, the scope of what God's doing in human history. Each covenant is directed by God directly. He works with Levites sometimes, sometimes he doesn't. In all the covenants, there's a sacrifice that's given. And in all of the covenants, God promises an eternal version of it later. They're all copies. They're all shadows. They're all images. So then you get to these six covenants. By the way, if you're into numbers, six is the number of mankind. It's the way God shapes that up. So six is human, it's basic, it is incomplete, the number six. And in creation, you could have six days of creation, but that's incomplete because what God really wants is for you to find his rest. That's where humans find their completeness is the rest in God on day seven. So the seventh covenant would then have some significance just on the numbers alone. So I want to go back to Jeremiah 31. If you dog-eared it, you can jump back there with me. I just think it's worth our time to go back and read this covenant of which Hebrews speaks. Jeremiah 31. And hold your page there. We may come back later too. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. We'll pick up there. And I just want to let God speak for himself. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. With, those of, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in that day. 
I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, not according to Moses' covenant. I'm going to make a new one, and it's not going to be like Moses. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. There will be no mediator. We'll go to God without Moses as a mediator. That's the promise. Then verse 34 in Jeremiah, No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. We don't have to go around telling other people what to do because God's already speaking to the other people. We need to encourage one another, build each other up, help, us, help each other get strength and confidence as we follow the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. Wait a sec, how do you forgive iniquity without a sacrifice? That's the, that's the rules. God set up the rules. It has to be there. So Jeremiah 34, For I will forgive their iniquity and, and their sin I will remember no more. Other places it says he'll throw our sin as far as the east is from the west. It's gone. Oh, but I screwed up. I did so many bad things. Nope, in the new covenant, it's gone. I'm going to forget it, every bit of it. Then Jeremiah 31, 35, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and the waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. Amazing. He tells everything about the new covenant except for the name of this sacrifice, right? He, the Lord of hosts is his name. That's all we get in Jeremiah. So the name of the new mediator the, for the seventh perfect covenant isn't given until Matthew 1, verse 1, the New Testament. New Testament's the new covenant. So covenant number seven becomes Jesus, the only one that fulfills the predictions of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Hose, Hose, all the prophecies of the Old Testament that are messianic. You got one family, one law, one kingdom, one prophet, one priest, no mediator because Jesus, God himself, is the mediator for himself. It's the only covenant that has, on both sides of it, is God and God. There's no human involvement in this, in this covenant. Moses was a mediator but a human, and he made a covenant for all of Israel. Jesus, as God, made a covenant for all of humanity. And there's no human that is part of this. It can never be a broken covenant. It's finished, perfected, complete, which is also the number seven in the Hebrew. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. It's divine. So the covenant does everything that the other six covenants were only an image of. Copy. Okay, back to our chapter in Hebrews. Verse 6. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry, insomuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. that make more sense now? Like he's talking about all the promises of the Old Testament, all of them. And these are just better ones. So now we can compare Jesus the high priest to the earthly priest that the Jews are following. He's more excellent in the Greek. Not just better than, but in the Greek that word excellent means of a completely different order. Right? Humans are a more excellent creature than ants. They're not even in the same category. So you could take all of animal kingdom and humans are somehow above that. In the same way, Jesus is a more excellent um, ministry of, above and beyond everything else that's on earth. Better service, better mediator, God himself. Better covenant, God makes it and keeps it and it's permanent. Better promises that see us through everything and hear us and mediate for us. And we have all the promises of God wrapped up in that sentence. 
We're secure in who he is. There's a joy to abide in him. We get rest. Frankly, I don't know if you guys appreciate it. I love Sundays because I can just take a break from everything else. I can just breathe. And we get that as a gift from God every week to remind us that that's the goal of life, is to find that rest in Christ. If we trust the promises, we can enjoy the ride. It's just that easy. So then you think, well, how does that work? Well, when you get in an airplane, either you trust the pilot or you don't. Right? And in real life, we got an airplanes and pilots still wear suits. They look trustworthy. We can then relax on the plane. In the movies, you get into the plane with the chip, chicken coops in the back, and the driver is universally and comically a complete nincompoop. And it, makes, it raises the drama, because why would you trust that guy to drive a plane that you're going to be in? So the ability to which we trust the pilot is going to affect our ability to enjoy the ride. And that's true in life. People outside or without Christ, you'll find that there's a lot of chaos in their heart. Stress, anxiety, worry, depression. There's this milieu of kind of chaos in their head. And those that become mature in Christ, it all just kind of goes away. And they can just relax and be at rest. Or as we say, chill out. And they can chill out. So if we, <laughs> the same thing's true of any situation that we get into. When there's a thrilling ride to be had, if we can trust the, the pilot, or if you get on an amusement park ride and you trust the security system, you can enjoy the ride. Tom's been on an amusement park ride. I was studying this while you told me this story. He's on an amusement park ride, and he's a big guy, right? We all know Tom. And the thing didn't snap down. And he's getting on a roller coaster that's going to do swirlies and everything else. He didn't enjoy that ride at all. And that's how non-believers largely, that's the sum of how they can feel. Is, man, when a Christian, when our life is a mess and a disaster and everything's falling apart, you're like, okay, Lord, what are you doing now? This is tough, but I'm going to get through it because I trust the pilot. I trust the security system. But for a non-believer, stuff falls apart. Their whole world evaporates. The wrong person gets elected. The world is going to implode on itself. I must move to Canada, right? <laughs> or, or this bad thing happens, and, and, well, I might as well just end it all. And suicide becomes a thing. Suicide rates in the last two years have skyrocketed. This world's not a fun place for people that don't trust the pilot. They don't know where they're going. This is a more excellent ministry that God has. That's the argument of Hebrews. I think for God's people, we should be totally excited the worse this stuff gets. Oh, one more example of trusting the pilot. When your kids are really little and they hang around with mom or dad, we can do all sorts of things with them that they just think is a blast. Like with Grant, he loved it when I would throw him into the air and then catch him. And he loved it so much that when we were walking, we always made him hold our hands. He didn't like that at first because he's stubborn. He was stubborn when he was three, right? But he, he would, would he hold the hand, and eventually he would make some joy out of holding the hands because he would run ahead and then kick his feet in the air and swing up on my hand. So we'd be going through the grocery store, Walmart, and he would just be full-on, horizontal, like I'm an amusement park ride to the kid. But he, and, he had, and he would giggle and laugh. He thought it was the greatest thing in the world because he trusted the person holding his hand. Then we were walking through Home Depot one day. And Home Depot is exciting for me, so I'm distracted. And I'm looking at all the power tools. And Grant decides to do this thing. Only I didn't have his hand very, like I was loosely holding his hand. And he kicks, he runs ahead, kicks his feet out from under him. And I can see him frozen in time <laughs> to this day. And he is full on horizontal in the air. And then gravity takes over. And he goes 
bam, and I can hear the back of his head crack on the pavement. And I'm like, oh, I just killed my son. Because, you know, you hear stories like you hit the back of your head, that can kill you. And I'm just like, oh, Grant, I'm so sorry. And he, start, he sits there for a second before the pain registers. And he looks at me like, you dropped me. You dropped me, Daddy. Like, why would you do that? And it broke all trust. And forevermore, he never wanted to go on that ride. The world is great for people when you are young and you're going to parties and you're drinking and you're, and you're living and you're doing whatever you want to do until it crashes. And you realize this world does not have my hand. Holy crud, it doesn't have my hand. And this world is like concrete when you hit. It wants you to smash on that thing. It wants not just to wreck you. Bible says the enemy wants to seek, kill, and destroy. It wants to take you out. We have a better mediator than that. We have somebody that even when we're stupid still has our hand. And Grant wasn't stupid. He just trusted a human. That's the problem. The Jewish people aren't stupid. They're trusting a human, and that's the problem. At some point, that priesthood will let you down because they're of earth. So then we get to verse 7. Again, I just, the devotional aspect of this. For the first, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. That's a key point. If it was good, why are there all these prophecies of a Messiah? What's the point of a new covenant that's been prophesied? And we went back to Jeremiah and read the promises. Why are there promises if that covenant's so awesome? Why are you clinging to that old life? So, the fault of the Old Covenant is it never really reconciled humanity. It only temporarily did so so that people could come in the presence of God and get the counsel of God. It depends on those humans. Jeremiah 30, I'm going to go back to verse 11 now. This is when Jeremiah is promising that Israel is going to come back from Babylon. They're being disciplined. They're going through a tough time. And Jeremiah is trying to tell them, you got hope of something better. God promises to break this burden that they have. That's an important promise. You guys are Jews. You're going through some tough times. You're going through some struggles. The concrete's nailing you in the back of the head because you trusted this priesthood. But listen to this, Jeremiah 30, verse 11. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered you, yet I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you in measure. This is just discipline, my friend. We're just getting you carved because the stone's got to be hammered away at outside of the temple God's building. But I want the stone to be chiseled away and I, I do want you there. I will not leave you altogether unpunished. You will go through some tough things. We've got to get that sin out of your life. For thus says the Lord, your bruise incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. I think that truth is hard to hear. I was talking to one young man and he was struggling. He was depressed. He was going through a hard time. And I gave him the horrible counseling advice of God. But in human standards, this is horrible. That's why I call it horrible. And I said, you know what? Life does suck. It is horrible. There is a concrete floor waiting for every human being. Everything you're saying is true. You are not good enough. You are not smart enough. You are not. It's the opposite of self-esteem education. You're right. It's all busted. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trying to fix yourself. Stop it. Wake up. And that's what God's doing. Jeremiah wasn't a popular prophet, by the way. He is, is he's like one of the only prophets that didn't successfully convert anybody, right? 
Yet he's got, he's one of the major prophets, has a large part of the Bible. The promise is you're in a mess, but you're going to end up in the land that God's made for you. This mess that you're in right now is temporary. What a wonderful promise. You have no healing medicines. You can't fix yourself. Good news, God's got your hand. He fixes you. You don't. What a wonderful promise. And then Hebrews, again, just keeps rolling. Verse 8, back in Hebrews. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregard them, says the Lord. Literally says, because I took them by the hand. What an image of a father holding the hand of a son or his children. The quote from Jeremiah 31, we already read that quote, is 600 years before the book of Hebrews is written. God promises this long before it happens so that neither side of the timeline can take credit for it. Writers of Hebrews can't take credit for this. Jeremiah can't take credit for it. The only way this works is that God is working throughout history through human beings. So because of their fault, because they're human, God has to come. Now go to Isaiah chapter 7. This is just wonderful when you put these... Hebrews ties things together in some really powerful ways. Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read in verse 13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too... Remember the last covenant given is the Davidic covenant. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. I'm going to send you somebody and they're going to actually live a sinless life. They're going to know how to do it. From the Garden of Eden, humans have not known good and evil like we thought we would. Satan lied to us. We've never figured out good and evil. There's a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to death. Proverbs something. 25 somewhere since Adam and Eve we've never been able to make this choice but God's going to send someone that will do it and the name of this person is God with us he's going to send himself so here's the amazing part as we enter into this new covenant first Kings 5 which we're going to study tonight there are lots of different types of people that are going to come into this new covenant different stones get selected and picked first Kings chapter 6 that temple is going to be covered inside and out with gold. The new temple God's making is pure. There's going to be a work of human hands that we're going to be able to say this is the work of God because we just can't deny how God weaves everything together in our lives. He's making it all happen. And then there's going to be this place to settle and find God's rest so people can be at their best. Just beautiful. Then Hebrews verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord, I will put my law in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the promise. Writer of Hebrews is just quoting it for us so we don't have to look it up on... You know, I, the disciples didn't have blue letter Bible to just look it up on their phones so they had to put it in there. No human mediator. God will do it. We don't need Pharisees to tell us the law. It's going to be written on our hearts. I don't need a Pharisee every week to tell me what's right and right, wrong because... God actually brings the Holy Spirit to convict us. Isaiah 55, 3. Incline your ear, come to me, 
here that your soul might live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. It's going to go, this is going to be the final covenant. It will be everlasting. It won't be broken. So having that written on our mind and hearts, literally every day we wake up, we have this opportunity to follow God and to see his grace. God has already given the graces ahead of time, and we can generally only see them in hindsight. So we wake up each day saying, Lord, what do you have for me today? What work do you have for me today? What do you want me to do today? How can I be a blessing today? But when we look back on things, we see how he strung it all together, and we honestly know we can't take credit for it because we didn't beat that sin. We didn't convert that person. The Holy Spirit was doing all that work well in advance of us ever showing up. Was God in that? Like, that's what we ask as a church. We'll be like, man, this thing happened, and I think I saw God in that thing. And that's part of what we share with each other in fellowship. I see God at work, and here's where it's happening. And it's amazing that you have one person in the body that's encouraged at the same time somebody else in the body has almost got an equal measure of discouragement. And in that, we build each other up. And even in that, we can say, oh, God's just working on our hearts as a fellowship. That's why gathering's important. So how many of these grace moments do we miss because we're just going through life and we're not even tuned into them? Having the laws written on our mind and hearts, I will be their God and they shall be my people. But if we're not following the Lord day by day faithfully, we just don't even see it. He's not really our Lord. We're our own lords. But he has his laws. There's this still small voice. <laughs> it's why we study the word of God. To say my laws are written on their hearts I'll, a lot of times I'll be going through life and, an, and a thing will happen and I'll remember what we were t studying on Sunday. And it's amazing how that works, that what we're studying on Sunday actually plays into your week ahead of time. That's where you get mature believers that are like, I need to be in the Word every day. Once a week at church isn't enough. That's my icing on the cake. But the cake is to be in the Word every day on my own, not trusting that idiot pastor with everything. Like he's got to be tested against the Word of God. Because if he starts straying from that, it's my job to keep him in check. Some of you take that job very seriously. Thank you for doing that. We follow God's laws. We walk in his ways. That's been the commandment of God since Genesis. Only we get to do that, and there's this one-on-one -on -one relationship between us and God. Wow. Verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor. That's the Pharisees were teaching the neighbors. That's kind of what Pharisees did. They ran around telling other people what to do. Nobody's going to do that. Is that true in the church today? Or do we still have people running around telling other people how to be, how to be holy? Like, if God's talking to everybody, then we shouldn't have to do that. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, I know, know the Lord, for all shall know me. And from the least of them to the greatest of them, it doesn't matter where people are at in the kingdom, God's working on your heart. For I will be merciful to hear their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, and I will remember no more. So again, there's a quote here that they're quoting the Old Testament to make this point. Knowing the Lord requires a knowable manifestation of God. For them to say that we will know the Lord, you look at the Old Testament, the Lord was kind of unknowable. Remember that? That's why the people were like, Moses, you've got to be our mediator. So in the Old Testament, God is all-powerful, intimidating, unknowable. People's faces glow when they're done dealing with this God. The people are like, this is too much for us. It like rattles us to the core. We need Moses, a human, to be the mediator. The new covenant, God says, you know what? I'm going to condescend to you. I'm going to express myself in a way that's not so brilliant and powerful that your knees start quaking at my presence. 
So he comes as Jesus Christ and becomes the mediator. Instead of a human, God does it himself. Think of that as just a theological idea and concept in order so that we might have his laws on our heart, in order that we can know God ourselves without any mediator but God. Isaiah 59.9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Every week we get to test our thoughts against what the Bible says. And the only people I know that really struggle are the people that want to do it their way instead of the Bible way. People that just eventually are like, I'm just going to go with what the Bible says. They find a great peace in that. I'm just going to submit to the Word of God. I'm just going to do what it says. From the least of them to the greatest, everybody has access. Matthew 18, this was an emphasis of Jesus. At the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Calling a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Super simple. And he's not talking like child, like, you know, he's talking to child in the sense that children just know how to obey their God and just relax in it. We stop looking to determine right and wrong for ourselves. We start just trusting that the Lord knows what it is. So when the world says you're not a female or a male, you don't believe that. You shake that off like water off a duck's back because you know what you are because God made you a certain way. Simple. Where the world gets confused, more and more confused, we stay super clear in it and we're pretty much happy where we're at. There's no conflict in that. Because our, our understanding of the Bible relates to truth better than we can even do by ourselves. So we stick to it. Verse 13. He, in that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And we end the, this is a really pretty short chapter, but we're going to do more Old Testament Bible study. If you bear with me. This new covenant's a big deal, making the first obsolete. So the Mosaic system was faulty, declared as such 600 years before Hebrews. In a lot of different places, it's well established that there would be a Messiah that would bring a new covenant. So the first covenant's broken. Now the new covenant is unbreakable because God holds it up. Go to Ezekiel. Keep your finger in Jeremiah and Matthew. We'll go back to both of those. But I want to tie all of these together with this new covenant. Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, this comes down to like, we all know the Lord, puts the law of right and wrong right in our hearts. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It doesn't say that we're going to be perfect. In fact, when we screw up as believers, we feel bad about it. Oh, wow, I keep screwing up. Do you feel bad about it? Yeah, then the Holy Spirit's working on your heart. Stop doing the things that make you feel bad. Right? And then if you flip forward another chapter, Ezekiel 37, verse 26, just a page forward. I will make a covenant of peace with them. Peace in the Old Testament is our relationship to God. But we're gonna have, there's an entire offering called a peace offering, which you give after the sin's been atoned for. So Jesus becomes our sin atonement sacrifice, but there's also then this peace relationship that we have with God. And we can, peace, peace offerings were the best kind because you barbecued them and ate them with all your family and friends. 
like you have a feast with a peace offering. There's a communion and a community. I will make a covenant of peace with them, Ezekiel 70, 37, verse 26. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. This is the deal forever. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and then set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now Jewish people argue that Ezekiel is just talking about Israel here. Fine argument because I think he is talking about Israel here. But when God says something, it becomes true forever for all of eternity. Right? So in the sense that he's talking to Israel specifically in Ezekiel, there's also this idea that Israel will have a future that doesn't exclude Gentiles necessarily, where God will dwell with them. He won't dwell in a temple anymore. He'll be where the people are, just like the tabernacle. Wherever you gather, wherever you get together, when you have a problem and two or three of you have to address a, an issue in the church, God says you'll be there in that moment. He didn't make that promise in the Old Covenant. So there's this strong image of, of, of the Old Covenant aging and feeling its age a metaphor we all get to experience as we turn 50. The law itself becomes kind of dead to the people who live it. It doesn't, like Pharisees were nasty people, you know, and people that only live by legalism and what you should do and walk around with rulers and slap knuckles, they're miserable people and they're generally unlikable. And God says he's going to do something new and he's going to get away from the dead stuff. Go to Jeremiah, verse chapter 31, which we already looked at. But keep your thumb in Jeremiah because we'll go to chapter 8. They shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sins no more. This new covenant has a forgiveness of sins. And again, I'm reading stuff from the Old Testament. It's always been that way. It's always been the thing. There aren't two different gods, one of the Old Testament, one of the New Testament. Both gods promise this. So now Jesus has come. God has come himself, and he says it, and he's going to forgive their sins because he is the burnt sacrifice. That makes all of Judaism, again, this is Hebrews going, not only should you not go back to synagogue, but going back to synagogue is like touching dead things, which is against the law. It makes you impure. So there's this image, if you go back to a dead covenant, it's like you're going back to touch a dead body. Stop doing that. You go back to magic crystals and things that, you know, spiritualism or new age occult stuff, you're touching dead things. It makes you unclean. Get away from that stuff. Don't go to the gypsy, even at the Renfest. Stay away from that stuff. God isn't Hebrew. He is God. And that makes, it, it, making Judaism obsolete doesn't mean that Judaism was bad. It just means God's not a Jew. He's God. In the same sense, God's not Calvary Chapel. He's not family Bible study, right? He's, he's God. He's way above any organization. He's not Lutheran and he's not Baptist. He's God and he's God alone. So for these people clinging to Judaism and those traditions, they're clinging to something that has not brought them life. And it's not okay to do that. So this is the institution of the New Covenant. Flip forward to Matthew chapter 26. It's two-thirds through your Bible. This is Jesus setting up the New Covenant with his disciples. I love this. Like It's very clear what's going on here. Now as they were eating, I'll wait for pages, Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it and broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. And we miss that. We hear this all the time, right, when we do communion. But he's, he's instituting a new covenant with his own blood. 
is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many of the for, for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I te- I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit and of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's establishing the new covenant. So the pouring out of blood that he's talking about has to do with the image, the copy of the Mosaic system. They would kill an animal and they'd pour the blood out. They'd sprinkle it all over the altar and then they'd pour the remainder out on the ground because it's useless, it's dead and it's sin. They'd take the carcass and they'd burn it up to ash, just giving it all to God. And Jesus, when he's doing that, is saying that was simply an image of the real deal and I'm the real deal. My blood's going to be scattered all over Jerusalem. There's going to be droplets of his blood all the way down the Via Dolorosa. And then on the cross, it's just going to pour out on the ground. The same spot where we see Abraham go with Isaac. The same spot where they build this temple that's so important, establishing the covenant. Same hill. It's just stunning. Mike was just there. At that time, the death of the first covenant then goes away. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 8. I know I'm bouncing around a lot. I don't typically do that. I hope it's worth it to see this in the Old Testament. Rather that you just read it than you hear me say it. Okay, back in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its princes, the bones of its priests, the bones of its prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. What, What does that mean? That's crazy talk. What do you mean? A bunch of people are going to get up and walk around when the new covenant is found? So at the establishment of this promised time, there's going to be a bunch of zombies that walk around. And it'll be at this place in Jerusalem that it happens. Now we know the place. Now flip back to Matthew 27, and I promise is the end of our flipping. The symbol of the new covenant. Like, what's going to tell us when it's here? How do we know when the new covenant just got established? And you get this obscure little thing in Jeremiah 8, a bunch of dead people walking around, that you just kind of read past when you're in the Old Testament because you're like, ah, I don't know about that. But then it happens. And Matthew takes note of it. Like he wants us to know this is an important thing because it actually happened. And I'm sorry I didn't go back to Jeremiah back when we were in Matthew 27, but sometimes you find things when the Lord wants you to. Matthew 27, verse 50, all the way at the end of the chapter. Jesus, when he'd cried out again with a loud voice, he's on the cross, he yielded up the ghost. Again, they didn't take his ghost, he yielded it, right? So Jesus dies on the cross, becoming the sacrifice. Every covenant in the Old Testament required a sacrifice to seal the deal. So when Jesus dies on the cross, the deal is sealed. When he's raised from the dead, it's consummated, right? It's followed through on. And behold, the veil of the temple which separates humanity from, from God, it's rent in two from the top to the bottom. The earth did, not, did quake and the rocks did rent. That thing that separates us from God, that image that God had them build in the temple, a shadow of things to come, the thing that separated us from God, it's gold chains in the first temple. It's this massive, gorgeous veil that's super thick in the second temple. It gets torn in two, just absolutely shattered. There's nothing between us and God. Verse 52 of Matthew 27, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Like it's a, They're absolutely saying this is the new covenant. 
and it got sealed exactly like God would say it got sealed. Don't just read over Jeremiah 8. That's a massive thing that happened. And everything's sealed. So every covenant of the Old Testament requires a mediator. Every covenant of the Old Testament has a ministry or service to humanity. Every covenant of the Old Testament has a sacrifice. Hebrews, today we're in Hebrews chapter 8. Every covenant, Jesus becomes the sacrifice. Jesus becomes the mediator. Jesus is then consummating this, this covenant in the same way of every one of the other six. The only difference is this one is completely eternal. It goes forever. It's the end deal. It was the plan from the beginning. That centers the entire word of God on Jesus. It's why when we read the Old Testament, we're looking for images of Jesus there. Because we're told to do that. We're told to look back and do it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this chapter. We thank you, Lord, that we're not just doing the ABCs of the faith. That the writer of Hebrews didn't stop at chapter 5 and 6. That we get to sink our teeth into these absolutely meaty Bible studies uh, that, that, Lord, I hope give us encouragement and give us a foundation. Lord, we know that when we are on the ride of life, we want you to be holding our hands because you'll never let it go. You'll never drop us. We know that your covenant is better because you sealed it and we aren't a part of it. Lord, we know that this covenant was for the service of the people a better ministry. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that this ministry, this service that you do, out of love for us is one we can just accept and receive. Lord, we thank you that it isn't a ministry of works where we have to prove ourselves. Lord, you don't need our works. You desire mercy, not sacrifice. So Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your gift. Lord, I pray for each person in this room. May you anoint and bless them this week. May they go forth not just chewing on the ABCs and the simplicities of the faith, which are beautiful, but Lord, they go out just wrestling with and and sinking their minds into the the thicker, richer development of all of human history that you wrote for us. May we just know it. May we hold it close. May it be a thing that gives us great joy and peace in the middle of the storm. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.